HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, welcome to Japan Needs. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, a food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from our studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about, all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every deli in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. My guest today is James Freeman, who is a former musician and a founder of the Bluebell Coffee, one of the top coffee roasters, along with Intelligentsia, Sumtown Coffee, um, coffee uh, Counter Culture Coffee, and so on. And now James has multiple coffee shops in Bay Area, LA, New York, and even in Tokyo. And you may know, coffee culture in Japan is quite serious, unique, and profound. So today we'll talk about James' experience with Japanese coffee culture and the uh, difference between American and Japanese coffee cultures how James applies elements of Japanese coffee culture to blue bottle coffee, and much, much more. Uh, but quickly before we start, Japan East is available on Heritage Net Radio Network website, as well as iTunes and Stitcher as a podcast. Please go to iTunes and Stitcher and subscribe to Japan Eats. Also, if you have any ideas about the show, uh, topics of the show and the show guests, please let, let, me, know, let me know. Um, you can email us at japaneats at heritageradionetwork.org. And in fact, today's topic, um, Japanese coffee, was suggested by one of our listeners. So thank you so much. So now let's start a conversation with James Freeman. Hello, James. Welcome to Japanese. Thank you for having me. Okay. So um, so I heard uh, you used to be a, a professional musician. So what was your relationship with coffee before you started uh, Blue Bottle Coffee? Well, I have a complicated history with coffee as a musician. Sometimes you need coffee to function 
as a human, I suppose, you need coffee to function sometimes. <laughs> but my relationship with coffee was similar in parallel with my relationship with music because it was being driven by this perfection complex, only coffee seemed more controllable. Mm. Uh, long ago in the 90s was when I was working as a musician and I started to discover roasting coffee at home. And I was also interested in food. I was a farmer's market shopper in San Francisco. There's a beautiful food community and beautiful producers in San Francisco. I would roast green coffee, unroasted coffee at home on a perforated baking sheet in my oven. Mm. And the how coffee changed over time, how it was different on day two, day three, day four, day five, was very fascinated, fascinating with me. And uh, it was more than fascinating. It was compelling because... At that time in San Francisco, there was literally nowhere you could go where you knew when the coffee was roasted. Mm. That that seemed wrong. Um, coffee, this idea of coffee as fresh food was was undiscovered. It seemed undiscovered, and that was you know it was in the '90s before the internet had taken the joy systematically out of these personal discoveries. So mm. I felt like I owned this. That that this was this revelatory. Rel- idea that that nobody was talking about nobody was thinking about at that time Mm. and so my simultaneous disenchantment with being a musician never being perfect enough uh, was coupled with my interest in coffee and and knowing that I could make some like very interesting taste very compelling taste that I wasn't seeing I wasn't experiencing out in the world at that time and you know ignorance is bliss I thought I could do it. I understood the model of commerce. I didn't have a business background. I still don't have a business background except at Blue Bottle. And this Which is mod- huge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This model of commerce, you know, you, you make something, you bring it to a market on Saturday, somebody gives you money for it, you give them that thing, mm. and then you repeat, right? How hard could it be? Right. Well, it's amazing that, you know, I heard that uh, you started uh, your own roasting mm. and very small amount. And then uh, you started to bring your coffee and the drip at the market. Mm, yeah. So it's uh, the smell, power of the smell. Yeah, it yeah. Educate people. Yeah, it wasn't common to have coffee made one cup at a time. At that time, I started Blue Bottle in 2002. Still not particularly common now, but it's it's more more common, I suppose. But this idea of waiting for a coffee that's made just for you, mm. that making a single cup of coffee is a, a craft... And it's worth waiting for. It's worth studying how to do it better. That was very much not in the public mind, the food public's mind at that time. Mm. Now it's generally understood as being more accepted, more acceptable. Aye. But at that time, there were, the lines would back up at the farmer's market and some mm. people were thrilled. Uh, some people were angry. You know how that goes. <laughs> right, it's amazing. In 15 years, a lot changed. And, you know, like, uh, years. you're reading uh, uh, what's called uh, the third wave coffee, which yes. is completely different level of um, approaching beans and freshness, like you said. So. Well, is it? I, I Sometimes I take offense, not offense. I Sometimes I, I think I question that terminology, third wave coffee. I wonder how helpful it is. It's very much self congratulatory. But, um, you know, just think about um, Baja coffee in Minami Senju, out in the eastern part of Tokyo, mm. right? Tanaka-san has been sourcing single-origin coffees, roasting them really well, a variety of roasts, making them 
one cup at a time mm. since 1968, <laughs> right? You know, what wave was that? Right. You know, I, I think that that term, third wave coffee, is helpful, but only to a point. Mm, interesting. It's an American continental yeah, term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Wow, that's interesting. Um, so how do you define a great cup of coffee? How do I? How mm -hmm. should I? How did I? Whichever you like. <laughs> well, you know, and a long time ago, if I wanted it a certain way, I had to make it myself. And now when I want it a certain way, I can go to our shops. And there's a lot of shops that have opened in the last 15 years that I, I feel like are executing coffee very well. And then, as I referred to, there are a lot of shops that have been open for 40 years that are mm. making coffee really, really in a delicious way. So yeah, I look for inspiration. I look for this moment of, of appreciation and, and trying to be around somebody who's inspired when they're making it or, or a product that's, that's inspiring. I think that moment of inspiration is why people go to cafes. Mm, okay. So coffee being inspiring, uh, yeah. how do you make your coffee inspiring to your customers? It starts by admitting that the, the performance around the particular taste of coffee is important too and influential too. What people see when they walk in, what the door handle feels like, what the, the space is like. Is it inviting? Do, do they get a greeting? You know, is there a pleasant place to, or a pleasant person mm. to talk to, to ask any questions? The, the fact, sometimes coffee is, is uh, intimidating to people. So is it an environment where if somebody has a question, they feel like they can get it answered in a friendly and helpful way? You know, all of those conditions surround this cup of coffee. Mm. So those, have, those conditions have to be met. And then the absolute you know, impeccability of the coffee has to be met too. Is it, you know, well sourced, well roasted, well prepared? Is it served in an appealing way? All of those little micro conditions mm. have to be embedded in this thing that we call going out for coffee in order for it to be a meaningful and inspiring mm. experience. Right. And the coffee, actually, they are, beans are alive. Yeah. And there's yeah, yeah. so many elements like water, it's temperature. Yeah, right. Sounds like particle size, extraction, mm. all of that. What mm. kind of cup it's in influences how people feel about it. Right. And also human elements of baristas. And human elements. There are human elements. Right. Yes. Yeah. It sounds like it's as difficult as playing a clarinet. No, it's not. <laughs> really? <laughs> no, it's not. As we were talking about earlier, you know, being a clarinet, the clarinet, being in classical music, the standards of perfection are, are so high. And, and if you don't execute it well then you've disappointed Johann Sebastian Bach you know you've you've failed Mozart if you don't do it right mm. you know that's a horrible feeling you feel like you failed Mozart mm. you know so coffee you can do it over if you don't make it right you can tell the guest oh can I do this again you know this this espresso didn't come out exactly mm. and usually the guest is delighted they say of course I'm so glad you care so deeply <laughs> and then you get another there's no second chance mm. When you play Mozart. Right. So that's why you're really into coffee. It feels so much easier. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so I heard that uh, you've been to Japan uh, quite a few times. Yes. And so One when... day I'll go and never come back. <laughs> I could see even. Yeah. Um, so when and where and what kind of... Uh, uh, what was your first encounter with Japanese coffee culture? First encounter with Japanese coffee culture was in 2008. 
I just opened our shop in Mint Plaza in San Francisco that this, I, I guess you could call him a Japanese coffee mentor that I've known since 2004. He works for UCC Coffee Company. His name's Jay Igami, but he's based in San Francisco. And he was the one, when I was making pour over coffee rather clumsily with a just pouring the water steaming pitcher he was the one who told me this history Mm. of the delicate swan necked kettles and measuring the time measuring the brewing ratio Mm. and I had this moment of thinking that that sounds so hard Mm. and then like oh but I want to try it and then so he actually imported the first pouring kettles into the United States for us Mm. and um, and I finally went in 2008 and Jay took me and my wife, Caitlin, to must have been eight or nine different kisaten on like the second day mm-hmm. in Tokyo. Right. Well, kisaten, by the way, we're going to just dig into that term. Yes. It's basically Japanese old style coffee yeah, shop. Yes, old school. <laughs> um, what were the three words that you used at the beginning of the show? Profound, unique. Um, serious, profound, and uh, unique. unique. Yeah, serious, profound, and unique. I think that's a very nice way of describing a good kisatan. <laughs> but anyway, Jay took me to these kisatan and and you know, sometimes the coffee I thought was delicious. It wasn't always to my taste. It was always made in a very particular way. It was all it always had a point of view behind mm-hmm. it. There was like a master and it's usually he and he was in charge of defining the space, its characteristics. The, and the taste of the coffee. Mm. So it was a real moment of me questioning my own choices and my own career because when Mint, our shop on Mint Plaza opened, you know, I was on the front page of the food section of the New York Times and like we got tons of press and I thought I was pretty good at coffee. And then here I go to Tokyo and see these people with far more mastery than <laughs> I had at that point. And it, it, I really had to question sort of how hard I was working, what I was working on, what I needed to do to be better. It was a kind of a terrifying moment, but exhilarating moment that day. Mm, wow. Okay, so um, let's talk about Kisaten. Then. So Kisaten is uh, the foundation of Japanese coffee culture, I think it's fair to say. Yes. So uh, could you tell us what it is? Like, you know, Yeah, I mean, I can tell you what it is for me. I've been thinking about this interview, and what I don't want it to be is, like, for those of you who are listening to this, I'm just another American guy, and I don't want to be the expert on something. You know, I'm not a Japanese person. I I have a tremendous appreciation for many parts of Japanese culture, but I'm not an expert of that. So I don't want to be, like, like one of these, like, young American chefs who all of a sudden like go to Japan all of a sudden they're experts on ramen right you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) so I don't want to be that guy who's somehow an expert in Japanese culture because I'm not Um, but I I can evaluate the Kisaten experience as a performance as an art Mm. and take it on those terms I, I have obviously I've read about Japanese coffee culture and thought about it very deeply and have a tremendous appreciation but my my vantage point is from um, considering this beautiful performance, this beautiful mm. art piece that I'm lucky enough to be invited to mm. when I go to Tokyo. And from that, it's about, it's a, 
about a rigorous application of these thoughts about hospitality and execution. Mm. And when I go to a good kisaten, I see a sense of purpose, but also a sense of modesty. Mm. Like any of the virtuoso stuff is so deeply embedded, you have to kind of be a little bit of an expert in order to notice it. Mm. So the the performance of the kisaten, the rigorous control over brew volumes and extraction and just pouring you know you think like how can it be beautiful to watch somebody pour water out of a kettle mm. but it really like i think virtuosity can exist in many forms right. and that's so the, some of the best kisaten i see such virtuosity i call it the pearl necklace in in pouring so slowly but so methodically and so controlled you see these little connected beaded bead of droplets mm. of water and they make this little sound this little tearing sound that goes around and around the coffee sometimes five or six minutes uninterrupted getting exactly what the master wants out of coffee nothing that he doesn't want mm. and so just to be around that it's it's a usually if there's music on the stereo it's classical music it would be kind of I guess described as an uptight environment you're not going to talk raucously to your friends there's mm. no wi-fi you're going to sit quietly and if you have a conversation it's going to be in this tone of voice mm. that you and i are using so it's not a an upbeat place necessarily but it's mm. a place for like contemplation of two things that that i truly love and that's coffee and cake right. yeah it's like a meditating <laughs> yeah, kind of, yeah yeah right i really think um, no other Many other people can describe, including Japanese people like you did. So. Oh, that's nice. That's a beautiful say. Right. And the history of Kisaten is quite long. So the first Kisaten opened in Ueno, Tokyo, mm-hmm. in 1888 by mm-hmm. a foreign ministry uh, official. Mm-hmm. And then in 1911, a group of painters called uh, um, opened a Café Prantan. Uh, in Ginza to reproduce a cafe in Paris. Mm. So, but Kisaten didn't really surge in popularity until after World War II because um, Japan had to resume imports from, of coffee. And uh, like my parents, my dad used to go to Kisaten, and that's to me very nostalgic. But it sounds like uh, the, the popularity of Kisaten is really strongly coming back. I think it is. I what I've heard are many many Kisatens are closing because the original proprietors are retiring. But um, so there, there is a declining number of kisatens. But I do think that strengthening there, there is a resurgence of interest in kisaten by younger generations and people who are interested in coffee. Mm. So I think the number of kisatens will eventually kind of stabilize, mm. and you'll see the best ones thriving. Right. Okay. And they tend to be mom and pop. Yes. So like uh, master is the. The husband, the wife bakes uh, the sweets. Yeah, yeah. Daibo coffee was very much like that. Okay, right. And uh, so I saw one of your past interview articles, and you said uh, Japanese kisaten is devoted to quality and has its own style to achieve the highest quality. So could you elaborate on that? Yes. One of the things I love about kisaten is the very personal nature Mm -hmm. of each one. They can be radically different styles of coffee preparation, coffee roasting, of hospitality, of the space in the United States sometimes. And and in in Europe, especially Scandinavia, there's a a kind of a a rigor. There's a a 
an accepted way that coffee is made. Mm. And if you don't make it a, this certain way, then somehow you have less credibility. Freud has a term for that. I think he calls it the narcissism of small differences. <laughs> But in Japan, I feel like there's a wider tolerance for disparate styles as long as they're defended mm. very rigorously.、Mm. And that's the thing that I love or, or participating in all these different styles、mm. of Japanese coffee. Right, that's interesting. So, like,、uh, it sounds like, you know, Kendo, Judo, Sado in Japan is the, the way, Do is the way. So, that kind of,、uh, you know, your own concentration、yeah. to the spirit.、Yeah. And as far as、uh, you are all、uh, working towards the same spiritual concentration, it's okay, whatever, whoever is doing it. Exactly, the, the important thing is the work. Right. And、uh, so, I mean, to me, the Kisaden Berserk reminds me of a tea, tea master, of traditional、mm-hmm. tea ceremony. And I found an article about Japanese coffee culture in the National Geographic magazine.、Mm. And there is a quote from one of the Kisaden owners.、Mm-hmm. He says,、um, Japanese people believe、uh, that there is no highest form of any practice. Instead, we follow the way of Do.、Uh, for example, Sado, tea ceremony, is a way of tea. Judo is a way of self defense. Kendo is a way of the sword. And one、uh, always ex- exercises the discipline, but one never becomes the best at it. So, this is how I view coffee. And there can be many ways to brew it, like you said, but there's no best way,、uh, only improvements. I like that. I, <laughs> I, that really resonates with me. That's my experience. And I, and I value that, that sense of, of modesty. We were talking earlier about this. Six seat bar, cocktail bar in Shimbashi that I love so much. And the gentleman proprietor of Land Bar Artisan, he really has dedicated the last 20 years of his professional career to the gimlet.、Mm. And the gimlet is very simple. He uses beef eater gin、mm. and limes and simple syrup. But there's something extraordinary about how he approaches just the delicacy and the balance of, of that cocktail to be in. His space and to get a gimlet that he has made with utmost concentration is a real privilege. But he also has this sense, he talks about his teacher and how great his teacher's gimlets were. You know, there's this sense that Daisuke doesn't feel like, oh, I'm the gimlet champion. You, you know, it's like、mm. he's never going to wake up and feel like he's got the gimlet figured out.、Mm. And I love being around people like that.、Right. Certainty. To me, is a very unattractive quality.、Mm, I think、uh, the, the master's mindset of any dough,、yeah. the way, I think、uh, once you become kind of like arrogant, yes, you yeah, fail yeah. the moment you become arrogant, yeah, you, yeah. you're a failure. So that's tough. It's <laughs> tough.、Um, so the Japanese barista's、uh, te- technical precision is pretty famous. So、um, could you give us some examples? Yeah, I, just with anything, you know, the pouring the water. Is、uh, something that, that you really have to think long and hard about and practice. I like to see at the, one of the kisatens I like to go to, they have delicious chiffon cakes. And just to see, to watch the baristas frost the cakes, they、mm. have a bowl and they whip cream and they whip the cream perfectly. And then they, the chiffon cake has a center. Imagine a, a bunt pan, it's sort of like that, it has a center hole in it.、Mm. And I remember being there with my wife one time and watching them, one of the baristas frost the cake. He frosted it beautifully. And then we were wondering, like, this moment of tension 
is he going to frost the inside of the hole where nobody can see? <laughs> yes, he frosted the inside of the hole. So this deep mm. caring about little details which are not, in fact, trivial, mm. they all accrete, they all accumulate to make a hole. It's like a, a Georges Soreau painting, you know, all these little perfect dots. Mm. When you stand back, then they become something that you can't see until you have a little perspective mm. how beautiful all these dots are in as individuals mm. but then what the picture that they mm. collaborate to make right okay and uh, I found another um, quote of your past interview and you said um, yeah in a traditional Japanese siphon bars um, the barista brew uh, each cup by hand and they use bamboo puddles uh, to stir the cup creating uh, whirlpools in no more than four turns and never touching touching the glass and the coffee masters serve puddles uh, and carves puddles to fit their palms so that's I think it's un- unthinkable and the chiffon cake inside I mean it's amazing that you pay attention to if the inside is frosted uh, or not that's, right uh, right it you. matters somehow it matters mm. So I think you speak the same language. <laughs> I do feel like a sense of belonging there that I have rarely feel anywhere else. Even though I speak a few words of Japanese, I don't speak the language, and I often get lost, but I, it feels like home sometimes more than San Francisco does. Mm. Okay. So um, how? what is a typical style of coffee served at Japanese kisaten? I don't know if you can say there's a typical style. Some, my favorite, one of my favorite styles that they call, or it translates to neldrip, and that's a, a little flannel, a cloth flannel sack, sometimes often with a wire frame, and there can be a tremendous amount of coffee. The brewing ratio is maybe four parts water to one part coffee, so tremendously small brewing ratio, fairly uh, coarse grind, very slow extraction, and I love that style particularly just because it um, there's a voluptuousness to it. It's mm. almost like, I don't know, drinking warm frosting or molasses. Or the, the way they can coax flavors out of that long, long extraction mm. and the, what the flannel does to the texture. Right. That is, it's very, first of all, it's very hard to find that taste in the United States. So I try to avail myself of it when I have the opportunity. But... Um, just, just I, I think I like that, and it's also there's a transgressive nature to it because in the United States it's like if you're not brewing at seventeen to one, you're going straight to coffee hell. Mm. You know, I, I I don't really like that that kind of set of expectations. So the transgressive nature of the small brewing ratio, the low brewing temperature, the the long extraction. Mm. It, it's wrong to a lot of coffee experts' eyes, but if that's wrong, I don't mm. want to be right, right? Right. So probably it's kind of uh, more delicate and softer. I wouldn't call that style delicate at all. It's very, very thick, very, mm-hmm. very heavy. Mm-hmm. When I go to siphon bars, that's that's when there's real delicacy. Mm-hmm. And then there's other styles. This place um, that I talk about, Cafe Baja, um, they have a way of brewing paper filter. Mm. That's oftentimes a wider brewing ratio and it can be right. quite delicate quite mm. kaleidoscopic okay so because it's so slow and then thicker yeah the whole yeah, yeah. essence came out so that's like a dense yeah 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 right 
Okay. Uh, so let's take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll talk about ja- how James applies、um, the elements of Japanese coffee culture to blue bottle coffee. So please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's unique store in Lower Manhattan is home to perhaps the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan, plus the rarest natural sharpening stones and exquisitely designed tableware. They also host special events such as knife sharpening demonstrations and parties with New York's most famous chefs and restaurateurs. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the implicit and elegance of Japanese culture to your table, be it in your home or in the finest restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. So, welcome back.、Uh, you're listening to Japan Eats Podcast in Live Promo Studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, and my guest today is James Freeman, who is the founder of Blue Bottle Coffee and one of the top coffee roasters in the US. So,、um, other thing about Japanese coffee is、uh, siphon.、Uh, siphon used to be very popular in Japanese kitchen, and some of them still use siphon to make coffee, including now you do too at Blue Bottle. So, what is so special about siphon? Well, you get a lot when you order siphon. It's a very theatrical way of making coffee, so it's beautiful to watch.、Mm. It's very crystalline, almost the opposite kind of taste as the Nell Drip. So it's very crystalline. At its best, for me, what siphon coffee is, is a real voyage. It's, when it's hot, when it comes out piping hot, actually it doesn't taste that interesting.、Mm. But as it cools, it really. Draws you in, and every sip as it cools can be a different kind of taste.、Hmm. So, from the top of the cup to the bottom, you really get a, a kaleidoscopic view of this coffee that you're drinking. And, and that's one of the things I love about Siphon it's the journey from hot to cool.、Mm, interesting. So, I, didn't, I, I tried a Siphon a couple times in my life,、mm-hmm. and、uh, I should drink slower. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was really great too. And、uh-huh. by waiting, you know, looking at how it's made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It's very fun to watch.、Mm-hmm. Okay. And another interesting thing is、uh, aged coffee beans,、mm-hmm. uh, which is very popular in Japan. And I heard that、uh, some places offer 10, 20 old year,、uh, year old beans. And、uh, I heard one place, 20 year old beans,、um, a cup for $1,000. And spoonful for $20. $1,000.、Wow. <laughs> so,、um, have you ever tried aged bean coffee? Oh, sure. One of my favorite places is Cafe Lambre in Ginza.、Mm. That's been open since 1948. And they have, I've had decades old coffee. I've paid, I mean, I don't like to focus on the, the price. And I never really look because when I want a coffee, I just want a coffee.、Uh, I doubt that I've paid $1,000 for coffee. Maybe $18. Mm-hmm. For a demitasse of something delicious. I think I got a coffee from Mexico from 1976. Wow. That was very delicious. Very much not like a kind of coffee you would get in a specialty coffee bar in the United States. That's another, that kind of aged coffee is another thrill 
mm. because it is quite transgressive. You're supposed to, and we we work very hard. I don't want to diminish that. We work very hard to get fresh crop coffee in, to get it roasted well, and to get it out to have fresh crop coffee, and that can be very delicious and very vital. Mm. But I also think it's very interesting to see what other people doing are doing with aged coffee, mm. and uh, what they're doing at Cafe Lambre. I think is. Very distinct, very delicious, mm. and it's a beautiful environment too. Hi. I just had it's funny, the roastery is a few blocks away, our new roastery in Bushwick, and I just had two coffees, a Silvia Barreto coffee from FAF in Brazil, mm. roasted a month ago, and then that same crop from one year ago that our very um, geeky barista had saved. And she made Neldrip mm. for me, and she wanted to have that that taste, that comparison between this is post-roast, which is really interesting, mm. and what she coaxed out of the one-year roasted coffee with this special way of pouring and doing it in the Nell was like so like candied orange peel. It was very mm. delicious taste, mm. and that shouldn't be good. One-year-old post-roast coffee should not be good, right. but I think... That's part of the culinary genius of the Kisaten is taking sometimes fairly modest ingredients, mm. but transforming them through process, through technique, through execution right. into something that's quite magical. If you've ever had amazing polenta, mm. you don't think, oh, well, this is just cornmeal and water, right? You right. know, there's something magic has happened. Similarly with uh, these these kinds of tricky things that they can do mm, with technique. Yeah. Right. So um, when you say aged coffee, um, it's before being roasted, like you it, said. Yeah, there's, there's right. really two ways of thinking about it. Usually in Japan, aged coffee means aged green coffee, unroasted mm. coffee. But, and then they roast it, can roast it quite dark. What we've been experimenting with, with similar extraction parameters, is post-roast. Mm. And that has a different set of... of Kinds of tastes right. that are quite because delicious. I think if pre pre roasting they are still more alive, you know, flavor alive, yeah, yeah. and yeah, keeps yeah. changing. Yeah. And I heard it gets milder, less acidic. Yeah, I think it depends on the coffee and the age and mm. the extraction, but I think in general that's safe to say. Mm. And then post roast, the roasting part gets more accentuated. No, actually, just certain parts of the flavor. In this case, this one year old coffee post roast, just a certain like you got this one glimpse at this coffee and all the other parts of it, all the other aspects have somehow faded away and you got one perspective and it was a really interesting perspective. Mm. So that that was uh, quite striking to me. Mm. Okay. And uh, so I have so many questions for you. So there's, <laughs> it's, let's change the subject. So okay. um, what do you think about the food items that are offered at the Kisaten? Because that's a big part of the culture. Oh, yeah. I, I love the just in general the coffee and cake culture that that it's, you know, in the afternoon, a lot of people will go get coffee and cake, whether it's a bakery or a Kisaten. Mm -hmm. You know, I love that many, like every, there's nothing on that menu of a good Kisaten that isn't deeply, deeply regarded. Mm. that isn't considered from the beginning of it to the end. One of the most expensive things on the menu that of a Kisaten that I like to go to is a grape juice. Mm. <laughs> like 900 yen for grape juice. Wow. And it's really delicious. It's from, <laughs> I don't know, Kyushu or something like that. But mm. 
that you know they somebody has clearly put a lot of thought into what kind of grape juice they should serve mm. and they don't care that it's really expensive it's the best one mm. and they're going to serve that one nice. so similarly with cakes and cookies not all of them are to my tastes at every kisetan i go to but they're always similarly deeply mm. regarded right and typically um you know like uh this is called the morning service and mm-hmm. breakfast oh toast and, yeah yeah the thick toast and the japanese bread can yeah, be yeah. crazy high quality and yeah. most of them they're really, really obsessed about yeah. everything including bread so like thick toast and then there's a uh, butter thick toast that's and the bread's already buttered that that bread is so fluffy it's this far away from cake anyway <laughs> you know if it's the afternoon you might as well eat cake but uh, I really love that toast service. Right. And uh, this is a funny thing. So in some places, especially in Nagoya, uh, when you order coffee in the morning, morning service is served, which is basically free. And you can typically get thick butter toast like eggs and sandwiches and or it can be That's Japanese. Nice. Yeah, I heard it's for free. How do you make money out of it? I don't know. Oh, I don't know. But a cup of coffee and people, I mean, my friend from Nagoya said, you have to have morning coffee because it's... The, best bargain <laughs> so anyway so um so how do you apply the element of japanese coffee culture to your coffee at the brew bottle mm, we're not trying to make a kisaten but i have been inspired by the tools and techniques that are part of japanese coffee history so the kettles how we measure everything the pour over that we do that's very much a part of mm. Of my inspiration, right. the we have these slow drippers made by OG Company. They're beautiful sculptural ground glass things that drip coffee very, very slowly over a period of eight to twelve hours. Mm. So that's very directly not the taste that we're making, but that equipment, you know, technique informs flavor. And so, even though we're not trying to capture the same flavor of the Kisiten, the fact that we're being inspired by the tools and techniques mm. puts our flavor in a certain place, I think. Right. Okay. And now you have uh, six shops in Tokyo. Yeah. Uh, Aoyama, Kiyosumi, Roppongi, Shinjuku, Shinaga, Nakamegura, all those good yes, places. Yes, very good. Yes. And uh, so the, that was the first location outside the U.S. So did you adjust the menu for the location in Japan? No. That was a, one of the reasons we opened in Tokyo with out a license without a joint venture that was 100% funded by Blue Bottle Coffee US was because over the years I'd been having meetings and we would always get to a point we'd get close and then we'd get to a point where somebody would say well you know Japanese people like darker coffee Japanese people want smaller cookies Japanese people want this or that mm. and that just kind of bummed me out being at that point because I didn't want ta- anybody telling me what Japanese coffee wanted when it was my thesis that what Japanese cof- coffee customers wanted was what we did in Oakland, what mm. we did in San Francisco. Mm. And I wanted to give them that. I wanted to give them the best expression of blue bottle coffee, the most honest expression of blue bottle coffee that we could create. Right. And so that's what we did. And I'm just trying to do better than we do in Oakland. Mm. In Tokyo, and people have really responded to that. I, I think that's what people are looking for, not the one of those another right, similar. Yeah. Right, and obviously, I think you're inspiring people. And I think uh, American trained baristas opening cafes in Japan too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's nice to see the coffee culture, even though we've only been opened for two years now in Tokyo. I feel like the coffee culture, the 
sort of more third wave style, if you can allow that phrase, has really expanded. A lot of Japanese and Japanese baristas with Australian or US training、mm. or US based companies are opening.、Mm. Okay. And、uh, I think people, our listeners, want to know what your favorite kisaten is or are. How many places? I don't know. You can name.、Mm. Well, I, I love Daibo Coffee when it was open. He closed a couple years ago.、Mm. One of the great thrills of my life was being invited to Mr. Daibo's house to have him make coffee. Wow. That was great.、Um, so that, that was inspiring.、Uh, Hato in Shibuya is. Is very inspiring. I oh, so the satay hato、yes. in Shibuya.、Yes. Um, delicious cake, beautiful coffee, pristine. Is that the, the chiffon cake yes, place? Yes,、oh, yes. I have yes, to go yes, there. Yes. <laughs> And、uh, there's another place I love called Cafe Baha. That's way out east. It's Manami Senju.、Mm-hmm. In Taitoku, the downtown yeah, Tokyo. Yeah, yeah, yeah.、Right. Closed on Friday, don't forget.、Um, And that's a great place because it's got a great history. It's in a very unlikely neighborhood. It's not a posh neighborhood.、Mm. And his wife is a French trained pastry chef. And so the coffees are delicious, beautifully executed, but also the pastries are very good. If you get there earlier in the day, there's more variety.、Mm. Uh, Cafe Lambre in Ginza. Those are the places that I go to the most. Okay. I need to do a little more exploring, but right, those tend to be my favorite. So I'm going to put those names on the show page. Yeah,、so. please do. And、right. you're going to explode those places. Oh, good. <laughs>、um, Yeah, so,、um, well, actually, I checked and I have not been there, but、uh, I saw the website of Cafe Baja.、Mm-hmm. And it opened in 1968、yes. and owned and run by a couple for the last 40 years or so.、Yep. And they had big coffee beans carefully and roast them daily with a customer ro-、uh, custom, customized roaster at the shop. And the white bakes, the bread and sweets that go over the coffee. And yeah, the menu shows about 20 kinds of beans from all over the world. And also, I indicate which beans are light, medium,、uh, semi dark, dark roasted. So,、yeah. it's a really amazing place. There's a beautiful variety of tastes on that menu.、Mm. And typical mom and pop yeah, establishment. Yeah, yeah.、Right. So, okay, and what's your plan for the future? I don't really think about plans too much. We've got a lot of shops in the pipeline, so we're probably going to open one or two shops in Tokyo and a handful of shops. In New York this year,、uh, LA, we just opened a couple. And then we have new markets. We're opening in Washington, D.C., Boston, Miami this year.、Mm. So it will be a busy year. Right. But interesting that you know, all the locations are in the States. So why did you open a place in Japan outside? I wanted a reason to go to Japan. I also <laughs> felt that there was a significant business opportunity because we had this cultural resonance with old school Kisaten coffee culture. It was a way of kind of reflecting to a different type of guest, maybe a younger guest who, as you said, is like, oh, my dad used to go to Kisaten, who had that idea of Kisaten in the back of their mind, but this is a different way of presenting certain. Certain ways of feeling about coffee that maybe are not dissimilar to the Kisaten.、Mm, right. Yeah. Well, the other thing about the Kisaten, that's reminded me, it's like,、uh, you know, the, the teacups、mm. could, could be antique. Yes, yes, yes. And you know what kind of、um, ambience he wanted to produce, the master wanted to produce. That's everything. Right. Yes. I was at Hato with a colleague, a blue bottle colleague who speaks. Japanese, he's, he's Japanese and speaks great English. And for years, 
I had been haunted with this this idea. I they have a million mis- mismatched cups <laughs> there, and I would see the baristas often. They would move a cup over on a high shelf and reach for a different cup, the same volume behind it. And I couldn't figure out like what is behind, like why why do they why did they choose this cup and not that cup? Mm. You know, why did I get this cup and not the other cup? And I finally had the courage to ask my colleague to ask the master, so what's what's going on here? Tell me about the cups. And it was so beautiful and, and actually so daunting. What he said apparently was that maybe 75% of their guests are regulars. Mm. So when he chooses a cup, he wants to give the regular a different experience mm. than the last time they were there. Right. And then also when I was there at that time, it was October. So um, grapes were in season and, and this particular cup I got had grapes. And, and then he went on to say that you know, he liked to express the seasons in the cups. But that simple thing he said, he wants the regulars to have the experience of drinking out of a different cup. The meaning was so profound because what does that mean? That means he remembers mm. what cup the person had their coffee in last time right. and the time before that. Mm. And so because he remembers, it's like, oh, I'm not going to give him this cup. I'm going to give him that cup. So that's the hidden type of virtuosity that I'm talking about. Mm. And and just knowing that, as soon as you get to what you think is the top of the mountain, all you see are mm. so it's more mountains to climb, right? Omotenashi hospitality. Yeah, yeah. Right. In a very deep and profound, mm. unique way. So it's not just the precision or the quality of the beans and concentration. It's the hospitality element yeah. in Kisaten. Yeah. Right. Sometimes people think hospitality is like being nice or chatting or something, but the, like the depth of how they think about hospitality expressed in that way, oh, I care about you so much, I'm going to remember what cup you drank out of last time. Mm. That's, that's a deep thing. Right. Yeah. Okay, that's Kisaten. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so wow, thank you for sharing all those amazing ideas. My pleasure. So uh, please come back. I will. Yeah, so thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So uh, listeners, if you'd like to know more about James's excellent coffee, please visit uh, bluebottlecoffee.com. And if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for guests or topics of the show, please contact us at japaneeds at heritageradionetwork.org. And Japaneeds is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays, always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes and Stitcher podcasts. And please go to iTunes and Stitcher and write up a view. We really appreciate your feedback. And today's show was made possible uh, by Corin. And our engineer is David Tatasiore. And thank you for listening. I will see you next week. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. 
Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.